Luke chapter 3, I want to preach to you on the baptism of the Son. In order to set the scene for our Bible reading, it's important to remember that at this point, John the Baptist is the most famous person in all Israel. The Bible is clear that people were flocking in droves to hear him preach. He was a nationally recognized figure. People from all over Israel were talking about his unusual lifestyle, his uh, confrontational message and his cleansing baptism. And, And so it made sense for Luke then to introduce Jesus by way of his cousin John. Uh, John was so famous that people were wondering if he were the Messiah. They were waiting for the Savior. It was very clear from the Bible and from extra-biblical writing that there was an, an expectation that the Messiah was on his way and he was, his coming was imminent. And so they were asking the question, who would be the Christ? Um, when, when John arrived on the scene, he was, he was the best candidate of anybody out there to, to be the Messiah. And speculation was rampant. Was it possible that he was the Messiah? Had God finally come to redeem his people? And, and so that brings us to the passage that we're going to read today. And that's, that's the, 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 the mood of the day. Um, when I almost said mood de jour, just to kind of throw a little restaurant um, thing in there, but uh, the mood of the day uh, as, um, as we read our passage. So if you'll stand with me, we'll begin reading in Luke 3, verse number 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased." We thank you, Lord, for the message of John the Baptist. We thank you for the message of the gospel. And I pray that you will help us to uh, just um, understand clearly what we are called to do as believers. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. So as soon as John heard that people were speculating that he was Christ, the first thing he did was diffuse it and tell him, look, I'm not. Uh, He immediately answered that. He was at the height of his popularity. He was the most successful preacher in Israel. People were flocking, and they weren't going to, like, Jerusalem, to the big conference centers in Jerusalem. No, John was preaching out in the desert by the the Jordan River in in a wilderness area. And they were 
flocking to him by the thousands to hear him preach. But when they speculated that he might be the Messiah, John would hear none of it. He cared nothing for the opinions of men. The only thing that really mattered to him was that he was pointing to people to Jesus Christ. That was his main concern. And that, that is a hallmark of authentic Christianity. To exalt the person and work of Jesus Christ. Isn't it? J.C. Ryle wrote this about faithful preachers. J.C. Ryle, by the way, was an English preacher from the early 20th century, late 19th century. He said this. He said, A faithful preacher will never allow anything to be credited to him or his office, which belongs to his divine master, to commend Christ dying and rising for the ungodly, to make known Christ's love and power to save sinners, this will be the main object of his ministry. He will be content that his own name be forgotten so long as Christ crucified is exalted. And that should be true of every preacher of the gospel, every proclaimer of the gospel, whether it's from a pulpit or whether it's you proclaiming the gospel to other people, you should be content for your name to be forgotten and for Jesus' name to be exalted, right? Because he's worthy of everything. The whole direction of the Christian life is to make more of Jesus and less of ourselves, isn't it? This is exactly what happened to John the Baptist. His calling was to prepare people for the coming Christ. Once he had done that, he all but disappeared from the scene. Scholars estimate that his ministry overlapped with Jesus' ministry by only six months. And then he, he disappeared completely from the scene. It's kind of hard to preach when you don't have your head on your body. We understand that. But, but he was not mentioned anymore. It glorifies God for us to decrease so that Jesus can increase. And so John's reply to people speculating about his Messiahship is a perfect example of how to make Christ increase. Luke shows us three important truths about Jesus uh, that, that we're going to see that how John replied and how Luke put his narrative together. One is that Jesus is a greater man. Jesus is a holier baptism, and, and Jesus is a higher being. He's the only Son of God. And that's the, uh, the, the flow of this, this passage of Scripture. Jesus is a greater man. John only wanted to talk about how great Jesus is. Look at number, verse number 15 with me. Look down at your Bibles. All were questioning in their hearts concerning John. Now, that, that's kind of a weird phrase, isn't it? Questioning in their hearts. This is a way of saying that they were questioning deeply. They were really thinking about John and whether or not he is the Messiah. It's obvious that the Holy Spirit was at work in his ministry and throughout the land because the Bible says, Luke says, that they were in great expectation. And what he did, keep on looking at it, he diffused their expectation by arguing from lesser to greater. This is what he said. He said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And so he said to the people, can I paraphrase what John said? Let me put it in today's language. You ready? Look, you're impressed with me, but wait until you come see the Christ. 
Wait until the Christ comes. Then you'll know what true greatness is. I think it's so funny how people argue about greatness. And, of course, we live in a day when people have no problem telling you how great they are. I'm going to stir up probably some controversy, especially if you're less than 40 years old. But LeBron James calling himself the GOAT is laughable, isn't it? Uh, Because in previous times, the GOAT never said he was the GOAT. You didn't have to say that you were the GOAT. And we could go on. I remember Muhammad Ali back when he was... He was fighting. You remember Muhammad Ali? And he was always running his mouth. I remember one clip. He's, he's sitting in the corner. He's beat up. The other guy's working, uh, you know, doing, I don't know who he was fighting. I just remember the clip. And his trainer's working on him in between rounds. And he's just running his mouth. And he keeps saying, I'm the greatest. And I'm beautiful. And his trainer finally looked at him and said, you're not beautiful. Shut up. And uh, kept on going. I don't know if anybody's ever seen that clip. But um, but this, this is the day that we live, and John was the total opposite of, of, the, of the culture of the day and the day in which we live. He said, look, don't be impressed with me, be impressed with the Christ. Now, he went on to say, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, in the first century, most people either went barefoot or they wore sandals. One duty of um, slaves was to untie the sandals from the master's feet. This was such a degrading task that Hebrew slaves were not to undertake this task. Only Gentile slaves. So John is saying this. He is so inferior to Christ that he is not even worthy to do the most menial task for the Christ. A, a great teacher, a, a rabbi of the day, hardly had to lift a finger. His students did everything for him except one thing. His students never unlaced his sandals. According to one ancient rabbi, this is, this is a quotation, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosing of its sandal thong. So this would be going too far. This, this would be humiliating yourself too much. And it's, it's too degrading to your students to have your students untie your sandal thongs. And John said, Jesus is so worthy. He's the worthiest, worthiest of all men. He is so worthy of honor and worship that even the greatest man on earth is unworthy to be his slave. You take whoever you hold in highest esteem in this earthly realm, whether it's the most powerful man or the most noble man, and there is not one of them who are worthy to do one act of service for Jesus Christ. That's how worthy uh, Christ is. And when you think about that, then you should step back and think this way. How amazing is it, therefore, that God called us to serve Christ? Isn't that amazing? I I think all the time how unworthy I am to serve Christ. And much more than that, how unworthy I am 
to preach his gospel. We're all unworthy of that. But God has called us all to be his servants. We are not worthy except by God's grace. And therefore, in everything that we do in the name of Christ, in all of our worship, all of our teaching, all of our evangelizing, our witness and our service should be done with humble gratitude, thanking the Lord that he called us to serve him, called us into relationship with him. And the opportunity to do anything at all for Jesus Christ is a high privilege that we are given only by the grace of God. Boy, that, that, that just goes up against our culture, doesn't it? That's the exact opposite of our culture. But I want you to consider something even more amazing. This worthy Christ, who we're unworthy to serve, the Bible says, became our servant. We have the, the famous incident in John 13, where Jesus unlaced his own disciples' shoes and washed their feet. This, this was such a menial task that Peter looked at Jesus and said, don't wash my feet. But Jesus insisted, and it was a stunning reversal. Jesus is so worthy that he would have done his disciples an honor by asking them to wash his feet. That was the honor. Instead, he turned around and washed their feet. The Son of Man came not, Mike said it today, didn't, it? didn't he? The Son of Man came to be served. He, he, he prepared them for service by offering them the supreme service, by doing the most degrading duty of all. And you know what that was? Dying for their sins and dying for our sins. We serve such a wonderful Savior, don't we? Oh, man, that he called any of us to serve is just stunning and amazing. So he's not only a greater person, but Jesus is, uh, has a greater baptism. Look at what he says in verse number 16. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, this is a very misunderstood passage, and, and I grant that it's a, it's a very hard-to-understand passage. But Jesus is greater than John because his baptism is greater. Now, remember, John's baptism is a water baptism, a baptism for repentance, for forgiveness of sins. And it was supposed to be an outward symbol of what occurred on the inside. Now, John, he could call people to repentance, and he could wash them with water, but you know what John couldn't do? John couldn't wash them on the inside, right? He couldn't, he couldn't do that. And that's how Christ's baptism is greater. What does it mean to baptize people with the Holy Spirit and with fire? Well, if you look carefully, look at the second half of verse number 16. Notice the language. Who is doing the baptizing? Jesus. It's not the Holy Spirit. When you hear somebody say, if you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit, that's not even right language at all. Because Jesus is doing the baptizing, the Messiah, 
The Messiah is doing the baptizing. And Jesus is either going to baptize you with one or the other element. You're either going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit or you're going to be baptized with fire. Those are the two options. There are no other options. The root of the word baptize, baptizo, means to immerse. Immerse. Uh, I, I should probably quit saying this every time we come across this word, but it means to immerse. When the original translators of the English Bible had, trans, had translated it, the word would be to immerse in your Bibles. But they transliterated it. In other words, they took the Greek word baptizo and made it an English word baptize. Why did they do that? Because immerse went against the process of baptism that they were doing. They were sprinkling. And immerse doesn't look real well in an English Bible. You see what I'm saying? And so the word baptize means to immerse. And so follow the logic. Here's the logic. John immersed people in water. But the Messiah is either going to immerse people in the Holy Spirit or in fire. The baptism of the Messiah will either be for proving or for judgment. So have you ever been baptized by the Holy Spirit? Water baptism, by the way, we have a baptismal service next week. And we'll, we're going to turn the whole service into a baptismal service. The gospel will be given. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the service. But water baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. It's an, it's an outward sign of the work that the Holy Spirit has done in your life. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit regenerates, giving us new life, new spiritual vitality, right? The Spirit adopts. He claims us as the children of God. The Spirit sanctifies, making us like Christ Jesus. The Spirit seals, preserving our faith till the end. The Spirit fills, equipping us for ministry. And so this is why the baptism of Jesus Christ is a holier baptism because it's a, whole, it's a baptism with the Holy Spirit. Have you ever experienced this baptism? Every believer does. <coughs> it is because the Holy Spirit makes, is the one who makes a Christian a Christian. The Holy Spirit makes a Christian a Christian. Our baptism comes from Jesus Christ who has a, the, the authority and power to send us the Holy Spirit. And this shows the superiority of Christ. Whereas John baptized with water, Jesus baptizes with um, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. This reminds us that only God can do the inward work of salvation that leads to eternal life. We, we can share the gospel. We can proclaim the word. We can reach out in practical deeds of mercy. We can even baptize people with water. We can do all the outward things, but it's only God that does the inward things. What are those inward things? Like change the sinner's heart, right? He does this by the Spirit of Christ, which shows how great Christ is. 
And so Jesus is either going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit or he's going to baptize you with fire. And what is that? What is the baptism of fire? Well, some people say we see this on the day of Pentecost. It's the receiving the Holy Spirit. But that's not the context of this passage. Look at verse number 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. Actually, let me reread that because I messed it up. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor to gather wheat into his barn. Do you notice the possessive pronouns there? Did I emphasize it enough? But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's very fascinating. It's his wheat, his threshing floor, but the chaff is depersonalized. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You know what the baptism of fire is? It's, it's judgment. It's judgment. You know, in ancient times, the farmer had to manually separate the kernel from the, the stalk. This is called threshing. Um, and what they typically did in Israel is they would have a threshing floor. Usually, Israel's very hilly. Threshing, uh, threshing floors were up in a windy location, and they would take the stalks and they would beat them against something. Like this person here, I think this is somebody from Iran, is beating against the stump, and the grain would fall off. But the problem is that the grain had, they called it chaff, it's like the, the kernel around the grain, and it, you can't eat it like that. So then what they did in ancient times is they would take a winnowing fork, and they would take that grain that they had beaten with the winnowing fork, and they would throw it up in the air. And the grain would come down in one pile, and the chaff would come down in another pile. And that's how they would separate it in the wind. And so John was saying that the Christ would do the same thing to the human race. He's going, Christ is going to separate the wheat, which is the good fruit, from the chaff, which is mixed in with the wheat, right? And he's going to separate the two. The wheat's going to his barn. The chaff will be burned with an unquenchable fire. And unless you think otherwise, it will be thorough. No one will escape this judgment. Notice the term he uses. The term is he's going to clear the threshing floor. It's going to be completely cleared off. No one will escape this judgment. He's going to clear the threshing floor. Not one person who's ever lived will miss it. Not one. One day, he will sift all humanity, make final separation between two kinds of people, the wheat and the chaff. The wheat will be gathered into the storehouse of heaven and be with Christ forevermore. The chaff will be thrown into the fire the reference to unquenchable fire makes it clear that John was talking about the wrath of God at the final judgment. 
Everlasting punishment in the eternal fire of hell. That's the way it works. By the way, that's the way salvation has always worked. Did you know that? I know I repeat this a lot, but we need to understand how the Bible characterizes salvation. Salvation and judgment coming at the same time has been the theme of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Our salvation of one group comes simultaneous with the judgment of others. We go six chapters in, and we begin to find judgment coming with Noah and the ark, right? Noah and his family were saved while the rest of the world perished. We go a little bit further into Genesis, and we find that Lot was saved while Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. Both of these men and their families were called out from the rest. And the rest were judged and they were saved. In Exodus, we covered it last summer, right? In Exodus, God saved Israel through the judgment of Pharaoh and Egypt. What about Leviticus? Leviticus, we find that people are saved through the sacrifice of animals that are judged in their place. You say, well, that's just the Pentateuch, right? No, it goes all the way through the Old Testament. In Joshua, people were given rest in the land by the destruction of the wicked inhabitants. In, in the two books of Samuel, God provides salvation through the judgment of the wicked sons of Eli, the, the Philistines, and the wicked king Saul, in order that David could come and ascend the throne. These are all shadows of the ultimate judgment. When the church was saved, who was judged? Christ Jesus. That's the, that's the, the pentultimate, isn't it? That these are all shadows that Christ, our Redeemer, would be judged so that we could be saved. And ultimately it comes to a consummation in the future when Christ comes back and receives his own and judges the rest of the world. That is, by the way, what John's talking about. He's talking about that future judgment. And so, for every person on earth, every person on earth, every person sitting here listening right now is either wheat or chaff. And we cannot escape it. This was John's witness. And it was also his warning when the Christ came that he would baptize people with fire. Now, look at verse number 18, because Luke uses some peculiar words for what I just spent a long time describing. How did he describe these, what I just described? He said, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. <coughs> Doesn't it seem surprising that this is called good news? Doesn't this seem surprising? How can judgment by fire be good news? It's good news when we understand the truth about God's wrath and we start looking for a way to escape. That's the good news. That's the gospel message because that leads us to believe in Jesus Christ and receive the baptism of the Spirit, a free gift of eternal life, and therefore we escape that judgment. That's the good news. 
That's the good news that we carry. That's the good news that we proclaim. And this is how we preach the gospel. John preached the gospel right where people live. When he called people to repent, he didn't call them to repent of sin in general. He called them, he, he, he worked right down to where they live. Remember last week in verses 10 to 14, uh, people said, well, what do we do? He got right where they lived. He told them, love your neighbor. Quit being selfish. Give to your neighbor. Quit being greedy. Stop uh, extorting people. He got got right down to the sins that they were committing. He didn't back off. That's the message of the gospel. That's the faithful message of the gospel preachers. Look at verses 19 and 20. Because it wasn't just the common people. Verses 19 and 20, But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. What on earth is going on here? What on earth is going on? Well, Herod the Tetrarch persuaded Herodias, by the way, she was in a distant relation, to leave her husband, who happened to be his brother. And he persuaded her to leave her husband and to marry him. Now, they were part Jewish, and so this is an anathema in Jewish law, but it's an anathema anyway, isn't it? And so Herodias hated John so bad that she wanted him killed. Somehow or another, she persuaded her husband to lock him up in prison. But he wouldn't kill him. Matter of fact, he used to bring John in and and talk to John. But why, why did she want him locked up? Well, the answer is that John's gospel preaching addressed her sin and Herod's sin. Mark 6.18, turn, turn to Mark 6 if you want to see it. Mark is the most thorough recounting of what happened to John the Baptist, and we're jumping in right in the middle here. John's gospel addresses sin in, in the government official's life. He didn't back off. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. But he wouldn't execute John But Herodias found a way. She found a way to get this uh, annoyance out of her life. Look at verse number, I believe it's 19. No, verse number 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. He vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. That's a big mistake. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king, saying, 
I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so the king was exceedingly sorry, because of, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. He was an annoyance, wasn't he? John was annoying, and the government officials figured out a way to dispatch him. And so John's, John, um, it didn't end well with him on a human level, but it ended very well with him in an eternal level, didn't it? He, he, um, you're not always going to be popular when you preach the gospel message. As a matter of fact, I'm going to say that if our, if our gospel message is not pushing back against the sins that are prevalent in our culture, then we are not preaching the gospel message right. Because when you don't preach the gospel message addressing the sins of culture, that gospel message is being robbed of its power. The power of the gospel is getting down to where people live, addressing their actual sins and actual people. There is real judgment coming for real sin, and Jesus offers real salvation from that real judgment. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, doesn't cut it. You know, I was, I was, um, as I was reflecting on John's message this week, I was, I was thinking about, I was struck by the difference between his message and the message of the church today. We, we have um, <coughs> evangelical leaders. Um, I don't know that he coined the term, but, but he's the first person I heard use the term. Carl Truman said the word Big Eva is the way that he described it. Who's Big Eva? They're the conference speakers, they're the famous bloggers, they're the celebrity pastors, and, and they, they call for us to be winsome in our gospel message. Don't offend the culture, soften the message. Winsomeness is another way of saying, hey, let's just blend into the culture and don't be offensive. I don't, I don't think John's message was winsome, do you? I think his message was very offensive. He got right down to where people lived. But I want you to notice something. It's John's message that's offensive, not John. We ourselves shouldn't be offensive at all. I, I read an interesting story this week. Hopefully this, this doesn't derail some of you, but it probably will. I read a story this week that Justice Sotomayor was defending Justice Clarence Thomas. Is that surprising to you? To the people that she was speaking, they all probably needed a defibrillator. Because I, I don't think there's a justice more hated on the court than Justice Thomas. And I don't know, I'm not a court expert, if there's a justice more liberal than Sotomayor. I'm not, I don't know. I don't know that much about the court. The media makes him look mean and grumpy, don't they? 
every picture you see of Clarence Thomas, he's got a scowl on his face. And she said nothing could be further from the truth. She said he knows the name of every person who works in that court building. Not only that, he knows their spouses and their family members. And he's the first one to wish somebody a happy birthday. And he's the first one to ask, how is so-and-so doing who happens to be doing poorly for whatever reason? But she said our views could be, couldn't be further apart. That's how we're to live, aren't we? We are to be kind. We're to be known for our kindness, but we do not compromise the gospel message. We can't compromise the gospel message. What are the sins of our culture? What are the sins of our culture right now? I think the biggest sin of our culture right now is the sexual revolution. It's, it's moving at light speed. And I, I, I really believe that this thing is going to come to some sort of reign of terror. I honestly do. Do you know that right now, there are three boys, eighth grade boys in the state of Wisconsin who are being accused of sexual harassment. Do you know why? Because they didn't use the right pronoun. There was a girl who wanted to be called they. And they said, it's a girl, it's a her. And they're being um, uh, uh, not only accused, but prosecuted for sexual harassment. This is where people live. We Christians use the right pronouns. And we make a case for it from Scripture, from logic, right? By the way, you run across somebody like that, you don't have to use pronouns, just use their name. I mean, if you see a little petite girl and she says, my name is, is you know, Ted, and... Um, I want to identify as a man to say, hey, nice to meet you, Ted. Move on. <laughs> Seriously. Um, but but we, we use the right pronouns. We explain that abortion is murder of an un, unborn child. We explain that all are made in God's image. And we explain that there's coming judgment for that sin. You know, God seems to be sifting his church right now as well. And I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that uh, this is the way it's always going to be, but it, is, it has been shown study after study after study that in the last three years, the churches that have gone woke, the churches that seem solid, that have gone with the woke trend, they're losing people by droves. Meanwhile, the churches that are proclaiming a message that is uncomfortable in the cultural climate of today are the ones that are actively growing. And that is because God's people want to hear his message. And they don't want cultural accommodation. John's message was bold. He spoke of sin and righteousness, repentance and judgment because this is a message of good news. This is this kind of preaching. It is this kind of gospel message that cause people to want to flee the wrath of God. We have to preach down where they live. Proclaim that message. And so I encourage you to proclaim real good news from real sin and real punishment. 
Well, the last part of our passage today shows us that Jesus is a higher being. He's the only Son of God. And we see that from his baptism. And I really want to uh, dedicate a whole message to that. And so we'll, we'll look at that in, in a couple weeks. But Jesus is a greater man, and we're not even worthy to serve him, but by his grace he allows us. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus has a greater baptism. He baptizes his wheat with the Holy Spirit and the rest with fire. And Jesus is the Son of God. And that's the message of hope that we proclaim. Look, I'm going to close. I think our whole nation knows that something is bad wrong. Right? I don't think there's anybody. You, you, well, nobody's ever happy with Washington. But the, 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 the job approval rating of everything is down. Everybody thinks the economy is going to crash. Um, all the business leaders are, are cutting their losses, it seems like, or, or, or planning to cut their losses. And, it, and people are saying, what happened to you know, Eisenhower's America or whatever else? And the nation knows that for the most part. And they try to pin their hope in anything that's not God. Well, you know, if we just get, if we just elect different officials, everything will be well. Well, they, they were saying that 50 years ago when I was born, or 70 years ago when some of you others were born. <laughs> it hasn't changed. They say, well, you know, if, if we could only do this, or if we could just solve that, none of this, it's all temporal. The message of the gospel is the message of hope, and it's a message of eternal hope. And it transcends nations, and it transcends ideologies, and it transcends all, everything else in the world. And that's the message that we have to proclaim. It's a message of hope, isn't it? We're going to sing a song in just a minute after we pray. I think, mighty to save, is that what we're singing? I thought I saw that. Jesus Christ is mighty to save. And he is. Lord, we thank you for the message of the gospel. It, it, is, it is sobering every time we look at judgment. It's a sobering reality. But it's one that we have the message of how to escape that judgment. And that's the wonderful thing. Lord, I thank you that Jesus came and he lived the perfect life. Never committed one sin. And people hated that. And so therefore they crucified him. But Lord, we praise you that on the third day you rose again and conquered death. You conquered sin. You conquered Satan. And you ascended into heaven. And there you are preparing a place for us. And one day you will come back and receive your own to yourself and separate the wheat from the chaff, the wheat from the tares, the good fish from the bad fish, all the other analogies that we can use. And that is the gospel hope. Lord, may we proclaim it unabashedly. May we proclaim it boldly. May we proclaim it un.
embarrassed and unashamed in Christ's name. Amen.